All right, good morning. Glad each and every one of you are with us today, especially if you're visiting uh, with us. Happy to have my Aunt Dixie here from Baltimore, and Ellie's family is here, so a special welcome to you all. Thank you for being here this morning. Um, this morning, we're, we are going to talk about some difficult things. Um, we're going straight to the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, the one advantage of going straight through the books, different books of the Bible um, in teaching is that we don't get to skip over um, the hard stuff or the difficult stuff, uh, and so we're going to be tackling some of those things uh, today. If you've missed any of the podcasts or any of the other chapters, uh, or we weren't here for a Sunday, you can catch up on the podcast. Uh, two weeks ago, Michael gave an excellent message um, from chapter 9 on running to win, and last week, uh, Cody just did a really great job on chapter 10 with uh, the nation of Israel learning from their mistakes and doing all for the glory of God. So I encourage you to go back and at least listen uh, to those two if you happen to miss any of them. Um, this morning, though, as we get into chapter 11, um, chapters 11 through 14 are basically one unit and need to be viewed as such, um, even though we're going to stick to the you know, 1 Corinthians 11 uh, this morning for uh, the majority of what we're talking about. But some of the things that are involved in this are uh, the role of women in the church and women in worship, and so we want to give a little bit bigger uh, picture of that um, this morning because that's something that sometimes um, isn't talked about as much as it should be. And so we want to make sure that we have a good uh, biblical background for understanding 1 Corinthians 11, and that's going to help us um, in our interpretation of the passage and how we apply it um, in our church today. So let's go ahead and go to the Lord again in prayer, and then we'll start with some of this background information. Um, Heavenly Father, again, we love you and praise you. We thank you, God, for the privilege to be here and to worship your name, and we pray that our purpose in being here will be for your glory, dear God, to remember Jesus, to thank you for all that you've done for us, and to worship you, uh, that you would be the center, God, that this um, really isn't about us, but it's about um, our participation with you, because it's about you, God. And so we just want to make sure that we orient our hearts and our minds toward you this morning, God. So please help us in that. Help us to love you and to honor you. And Lord, thank you for, for each person, for each life, and for each family that is represented here this morning. And we ask that you would bless each one. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, so as we talk about um, women in the, in the Bible, we're starting the Old Testament. And really, I just want to talk about um, things having to do with collective worship and ministry because there's just way too much if we go outside of that in terms of uh, different women that are in the Old Testament that are talked about. Um, but just mentioning briefly a few. So we have Miriam. Uh, she was the sister of Moses. And after the uh, Hebrews were led out of their slavery in Egypt and across the Red Sea, Miriam leads the women of Israel um, in a song and dance of worship. The words of the song are recorded as scripture. Um, you can read those in Exodus uh, 15, powerful passage. And then Micah uh, 6.4 says this, The Lord says, Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Mo Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Micah 6.4, so that's interesting. Uh, women served at the door of the tabernacle um, when, the, when the people of Israel, um, the Hebrews, 
were, before they get into Israel even, a they make a tabernacle. Um, Bezalel was responsible for constructing everything in the temple, that was, the tabernacle that was made. Um, Exodus 38.8 says, Moreover, he made the laver of bronze with its base of bronze from the mirrors of the serving women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Uh, we also see women serving at, at, at that doorway in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Then before Israel was led by kings, Deborah was a judge. She prophesied and co-led the people in a great military uh, victory. Um, but her prophecy is recorded as scripture. Um, in Nehemiah and Ezra, we see the men and women of Israel together listening to the law being read and repenting of their sins and worshiping God. Um, now, we have to say that here there were certain restrictions. Um, women could not function as priests in the tabernacle. But we also need to keep in mind that the priesthood overall was very restrictive. Um, you had to be a, a male between certain ages, and you had to be from the tribe of Levi. And it wasn't for any, just any male. You had to be from the specific tribe of Levi. And these restrictions were both because God has an order in his creation and because of the consequences of the fall. Those two things are at play here. And we'll discuss that more as we move through our passage. But since humans are fallen, both order and judgment can be distorted into something that God never intended for them to be. And so this is how it is as Jesus walks onto the scene in the first century A.D. Okay, so we're going to move forward here. So when Jesus enters the scene, the temple that Solomon built had been long destroyed and had recently been rebuilt by Herod. And when Herod has the temple rebuilt, the Jewish people have it built in such a way to where there's a courtyard for women, and then they couldn't go past there, and then the men entered into the more holy place. What's interesting about that is you don't find that in the construction of the temple that Solomon built, nor in the tabernacle during the time of Moses. It was more restrictive, and there was a balcony area where the women could observe what was going on, but could not enter in where the men were. So that was more restrictive than things were in the Old Testament by far. And that's important to remember. But nevertheless, at the birth of Jesus, remember the words that we already read this morning and scripture reading from Luke 1, verse 39 through 45, with Elizabeth um, giving prophecy and testimony about um, Jesus still in, in Mary's womb, who is going to be the Messiah, and then Mary... Um, the mother of Jesus and the words that she gives and the prophecy that she gives, both recorded as scripture. In Luke chapter 2, eight days after the birth of Jesus, Mary and Joseph take him to the temple. There was an older man named Simeon who took Jesus into his arms and praising God, saying, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. And the glory of your people, Israel. Amen. So Simeon prophesied concerning Jesus, and then immediately afterwards we read, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, and of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, in the ministry of Jesus, we find women serving with Jesus. Luke 8, 1 through 3. 
Soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses, Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their own private means. And so these women were traveling where Jesus went, they went, and were also you know, ministering to the people. At the birth of the church, what do we find? In Acts chapter 1, in the Lord's preparation for he, what he would do at Pentecost, we find the 11 apostles together. Remember, Judas is gone, uh, who betrayed Jesus. Verse 14, it says, These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So these women are there. Then in Acts 2, it says, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. In verse 17, And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So there were men and women together. There were men and women who you know, spoke in tongues, and there were men and women who both fulfilled this prophecy that had been given that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on your sons and your daughters. Now we get to the ministry of Paul. Now this is interesting because many people today view Paul as if you know, he, he was a misogynist and you know, he had a, some sort of you know, beef with women, some sort of grief of women, and that's often said mainly because of a few passages that are you know, largely misunderstood and not taken in their proper context. But let's hear from his own words. In the book of Romans, um, chapter 16, verse 1, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who was a deaconess of the church, which is at Centuria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. In verse 3, greet Prisca and Aquila, or Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who from my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. It was Prisca and Aquila who took Apollos aside privately and taught him a more thorough doctrine. That's the context there. That's one of the main things that Priscilla and Aquila were known for, was taking Apollos, who was greatly used by God in the church. And Priscilla's name is mentioned first, and that's not insignificant, because that wasn't the normal order of how names were listed, we're talking about you know, a husband and wife. Usually the husband's name would come first. But here, Paul lists the woman's name first, and that's important. Verse 6, greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Verse 12, Greet Tryphena and Trophosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the saints. And all of those names are names of women. Verse 12. In Acts, we read about 
John Mark's mother and also of Lydia, and Lydia, who was also part of um, Paul's ministry, insisted that uh, Paul and his companions stayed at his house while they did their, the Lord's work. In Philippians, you read of Eudodia and Cynthia and First Timothy. You also read about the faithfulness of Dorcas. Now, we haven't touched on many other great women of faith whose histories are recorded in our Bibles. But hopefully that gives you a picture and a backdrop for understanding you know, God's view and use of women uh, in his ministry throughout history, the history of the scriptures that we have. So in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29, we're going to look at that. Um, but before we get there, we have to say that, because, again, because of sin, the human race has been divided, we're fragmented, we're in opposition with ourselves. As humans, we're naturally divisive. So we're divided by race, by socioeconomic and educational status. Um, we are divided by borders, nation, nations, by languages, by cultures, by being free or slave or somewhere in between, and even by gender. But in Jesus, we have redemption and reconciliation, Galatians 3, 26 through 29. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise of God. So in Jesus, all believers are equally children of God. doesn't matter, slave or rich, or free, rich or poor, male or female, Jew or Greek. All who have faith in Jesus are right with God. We're all priests before our God. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So OAC takes our church, we take the priesthood of all believers seriously. That every man and every woman who is a believer in Jesus Christ is a priest before God and offers praise and sacrifice to God and has equal access to the throne of God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We take that seriously. We don't want to just give lip service to this doctrine. We want to actually practice it, practice it, and we strive to practice it. We expect that your spiritual gifts will be used when we come together for worship, when we're in here together, and when we're outside of here, that your spiritual gifts will be used to you know, benefit and to encourage and help the, the church body to grow and to be a good testimony in the world. We encourage each other and we work together. What we've seen in the modern church is the overproduction and overprofessionalization of the worship meetings of the church to where there's very limited room for the Holy Spirit to actually work and move and where things are very clearly defined. So this is, and this is a, is a problem both in conservative churches and in liberal churches. So in conservative churches, hardly anyone speaks, one, two people in any meeting. Same thing in liberal churches. And really, when we look at the scriptures and we see how the Spirit of God works and moves with generosity and with abundance, that should be heartbreaking to us. That that's just not how 
it's supposed to be, but we're so concerned that every word is said in exactly the right way and that we have this great oratory at our meetings and that we can cram, you know, that everything can be crammed into a very short amount of time so that you can beat the other church to lunch is a, a, a really, it's, it's tragic. It's tragic for the church of God. And it's not something that should be taken lightly. It's the unnatural quenching of the spirit, or, the, or in other churches you have the fabrication of the spirit, and in others the lack of the spirit. But we should be striving for God's authentic presence among us. Now we have to have balance in all these things. Because as we talk about really good stuff, about redemption, about reconciliation, about the priesthood of all believers... These things can be applied in a way that causes damage. This sort of thing happens all the time. Um, you, you take, for example, you can take any teaching and you can find an extreme that makes that, that nullifies that teaching, basically. You can take even the return of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is going to return. That is a, the truth of the scripture. That is the promise of God that is going to happen. Well, what if some people say, well, you know, the Lord's coming back, so I don't need to work anymore. I can just mooch off of other people until Jesus comes back. What would you say to that? Well, what does the scripture say to that? It says that it's, it's wrong. It's terribly wrong. Um, and so the same thing, sort of thing happens to this. People you know, take what's said here in Galatians, and they come to the conclusion that there's no difference at all between male and female in any sense. That Genesis 1 and 2, Ephesians 5, and many other scriptures are completely irrelevant with the implications that there's no headship in marriage or in the church, that uh, it doesn't matter which gender um, you, you are sexually intimate with. All of those things are implications of taking those doctrines in a wrong way and abusing them unto people's harm. And so we need to be careful about that. They go beyond the scope of both what was intended for us and what is good for us. So now let's get into chapters 11 through 14 of 1 Corinthians as we've set the table and how in chapter 10, the Lord's table has already been brought into play. So chapters 11 and 14 give us a seat at the Lord's Supper meeting of the early church, particularly this church in Corinth. We have a seat there. In chapter 11, we have instructions about head coverings and the purpose and practice of the Lord's Supper. In chapter 12, we have teaching about the purpose of spiritual gifts in the church, which is the body of Christ. In chapter 13, we have the need for love to be the overriding culture of the church. Hey, did you know 1 Corinthians 13 is not just meant to be read at weddings, (laughs) but has practical implications for the life of the church and for the meeting of the church. And in chapter 14, we have more specific teaching about the use of spiritual gifts in the church. So it all has to do with the meaning of the Lord's Supper. You have to keep that in mind throughout. The phrase you, which is plural, come together, which is singular. It's from the Greek word sonarkoma. It's used seven times here in 1 Corinthians 11 through 14. It's the idea that you all come together as one. That's the idea, the unity of it. The stage was already set. The table was already set in chapter 10, verse 17. For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. So these are application. There, there are applications for us outside of Lord's table in these 
chapters, but the priority and purpose of these chapters is to set things straight for the primary meeting of the local church. And here at the Church of Corinth, they have many problems and difficulties and are kind of missing the point of why they're meeting together and the things they should do and how things should be done. But the sadly ironic thing for many churches, particularly for many churches in the United States of America, is that they rarely, if ever, experience anything similar to what this meeting would have been like for the first followers of Jesus. And so these chapters become disconnected and removed from practical experience, and they just kind of get taken as, okay, here's what happened here, moving on. And there's some difficult things in there, so it can be very easy to read it and go, read certain parts and go, well, I really don't fully understand that, but I love Jesus, so moving on. But there are things here that are really important for us and very helpful for us that will help us to, to get a better picture of the why and how we worship. So at the end of chapter 10, we read, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. And then 11 verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So again, we have some principles here. God's glory is the most important. We all agree with that, I hope. God's glory is the most important. Um, that we do not want to offend, whether it's Jew or Gentile or the church. As much as we possibly can, we want to strive not to offend. We want to seek to be a blessing to others for their good. And we want to, tell, we want to be able to tell others to imitate us as we are imitating Christ. But here's a problem with that. There's a price to pay that comes with that. And this is an overarching problem. We often want the crown of Christ without having the cross of Christ. So now we get into 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 11, verse 2. Here we go. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Let me ask you a question as we go even further. And let me just um, go ahead and read verses 4 through 6. For every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Okay. What do you know about head coverings? How many of you that do not have a background with a group that wears, generally has worn, historically has worn head coverings, either in the Brethren Movement or the Mennonites, have ever heard a message on a Sunday, or really any other time, on 1 Corinthians 11. It's something that's just really not preached. Again, unless it's a type of church that's going straight through the book and going to preach every verse out of it, they are going to not touch it. (laughs) Not touch it. And if they are, many times again, they're going to go, Well, there's some things here, we might read it, okay, and moving on. 
nobody really wants to linger here very much in our culture unless coming from very specific groups. So is it just something that certain people wear or you know, even uh, a cultural thing? Like you might even just think about it in terms of Muslims and you know, women there going you know, fully covered, everything can barely see the eyes in some places and you know, less, um, less coverings in, in other places. And, uh, and you may even ask a valid point, well, you know, I, I've been here for a while. I haven't heard a message on it here either. Well, you know, for the reasons as stated. Um, <laughs> you know, and understanding that sometimes you feel like you have bigger fish to fry. Sometimes understanding you need more spiritual maturity in the church to be able to handle a passage like this. And understand the first time we've also taught through the book of 1 Corinthians. And also fear. I'm not... <laughs> I'm not um, unwilling to mention the word fear here because fear is a normal, natural thing and we tend to avoid things that cause pain. And so sometimes we run for those. So we've got three or four taken care of. I'll let you venture which one's left, but we're still going to move forward. Okay, we're moving forward despite fear. So let's talk about this. Where do we see head coverings and veils in the Old Testament? First time we see a head covering or veil used is in Genesis 24. Abraham sent his servant a long journey to find a wife for his son Isaac. Long, great story. Um, we should write some sort of dating manual about this. Just kidding. Um, but he finds Rebecca, and when they return, Rebecca sees Isaac a long way off, and she covers herself with a veil. That's the first time we see it. We see it worn by men and women in times of mourning and distress. I'll give you a section of those if you want the notes that you can look into later. You can see they're worn um, by the high priest. A veil is worn. And you can see that it's worn by Moses. A veil is worn, uh, covering is worn by Moses. Moses would actually have his face uncovered. He would have himself uncovered when he met with God. And Moses did not see God in all of God's fullness, but the glory that he did see would cause his face to radiate that glory. And when Moses went back to the people, the people could not handle it because of their lack of spirituality and their, the state that they were in. They could not handle what is referred to in 2 Corinthians 3.13 as the fading glory of the, of the Mosaic Covenant. The fading glory. They couldn't handle that. They were too worldly. They were not spiritually healthy enough to handle it. So it's that latter issue of covering one's glory that's here at play in 1 Corinthians 11. Mentioned earlier times of mourning, distress, you think we have the bread and the, and the cup here, and we remember the Lord's death, but it's not the sort of mourning you have um, when a, a close loved one dies. This is, I mean, even, even in there, if the person's a believer, you can have some joy, you know, in that mourning that that person is with the Lord, you're going to see them again. But really, this isn't about a funeral when we take the bread and the cup. It's about a victory. About the victory that Jesus won for us at the cross and that the grave could not hold him. It's about a victory. And that's also important. Now, as far as the culture in Corinth goes, because some people want to take what's here in this passage and go, well, he's just telling them what to do, what you know, ladies commonly did in this culture. 
Well, we need to understand that in Corinth at this time in the first century A.D., that there are multiple influences. You have Greek culture, you have Roman culture, you have the Jewish culture. It's a port city of international trade. You have people coming in from all over the world. And it's not really feasible to think that a cultural, you know, something used as a head covering would be used in the same way by each of those cultures. But it's going to be used differently by different ones and for different reasons for both religious and non-religious reasons. Okay? So you're not going to have uniformity there. So the, the church has to have its own culture and its own standards and its own set of what it does. So in verse 2, Paul mentioned the traditions. In some traditions are good and they're godly. They're traditions that come from God, and those are the ones that we should follow. There's traditions that come from men, and many times um, they're either unhelpful or they're only helpful for a certain period of time. Or they're, un, you know, they're definitely not things that are considered, you know, that we're obligated to or that are necessary. And those sort of things you can easily push to the side. But there are traditions that come from God. Um, even as Jesus gave us the tradition to take the bread and to take the cup in remembrance of him. That's a tradition. 1 Corinthians 4.17, earlier in the book, Paul said, For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. And so the desire there was to have uniformity in terms of the practice, regardless of whether it was a predominantly Jewish um, you know, group of believers as one church, or predominantly Gentile, whether Greek or whether Roman in another, or some other, other group. And thankfully, it seems like though they had to struggle through it, they had much more diversity in the early churches than is common today, and that's something we should strive to be getting back to. So now, verse 3, we have this issue of headship. So as Christ is the head of every man, or the head of every man is Christ. There's no argument here, at least in theory, right? The head of every man is Christ. But are we really looking at, you know, am I looking to be submissive to Jesus in everything I do, or am I looking to be in charge, to be my own man, to make my own decisions outside of his counsel and will? Then it says, and, and what I want you to understand here, where it says Christ is the head of every man, or the head of every man is Christ, the Greek to English can go either way, and equally so. Okay? Um, but perhaps one is a little bit more um, helpful in our understanding. Then the man is the head of a woman, or the head of woman is man. Now, there is a big argument here. There is a big argument about that um, in our culture today, most certainly. Um, and again, just a little bit of Greek there. The words for man and husband are the same. The, goods, the words for woman and wife are the same. The context determines. If you're using ESV this morning, um, in a good bit of the passage, it says um, husband and wife. Okay, but that leaves some issues. First of all, they don't find themselves being able to be consistent all the way through. Like in verse 15, they go back to woman, and so they're not able to be consistent in it, and they're influenced by what they view as the culture of the head covering in the first century AD, um, influences their translation. There's not, um, there aren't any other serious English translations 
that give that um, that take or give that translation. All the others stick with man and woman, and we'll do that this morning. I'm using the NASB for this passage um, largely for that purpose. So, nevertheless, as we talk about you know a household in our culture, it's very rare for the head of a household to be a man. What do I mean by that? Um, even if there's a man present, how often is he considered the head of the family beyond anything other than a title? Or a, oh, he's the man of the house. I challenge you to find three TV shows made in the last 20 years that give a husband-father character as someone who has their stuff together and knows what they're doing. They're usually just portrayed as an idiot who's always making mistakes. Now, is culture, is culture, does media influence culture or is media a reflection of culture? Well, probably some of both. And yet, we still have this chauvinism, this machoism, where women are regularly denigrated, not treated fairly, and abused. Despite all of that. So, let's keep going. The head of Christ is God. Now, here's a key point being illustrated, and it seems like we have this idea that there's the authority of Christ and the church relation to him is present in this passage, just as it's present in Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll get to that um, a little bit later. But there's this idea of a double meaning, or there's a couple, uh, two different ideas or threads going on in this passage. One is the headship of, of man over woman, and we'll talk about that and exactly what that means. But the other is about representation, and that the man, in this, in, as we meet together for the Lord's Supper, represents Christ, and the woman represents man's glory, you know, humanity, if you will. And so we'll talk about um, that a little bit because the picture here, the pictures are important. Now, as we look at that, when it says the head of Christ is God, we thoroughly and fully believe and understand that Christ is equal to God and that Christ and the Father and the Holy Spirit are equal to one another, that in their equality, one is not above another. Yet we see the headship of the Father both in creation and in salvation. And we see Jesus Christ, we see Christ willingly submitting, not forced, willingly submitting himself to the will of the Father in those situations. And that's instructive to us because we have to be very careful that our interpretation of this passage does not denigrate Christ, does not make him any way less valuable or shame him in any way. The word of God, of course, would not do that. So men and women, listen very carefully to this. If you use Ephesians 5 or you use anything in 1 Corinthians 11 through 14 or in 1 Timothy 2 or anywhere else to say that men are more valuable than women or to denigrate women in any such way, you are at best committing heresy, that's false teaching, and at worst you're committing blasphemy, you're speaking evil against God himself. Because he is 
the creator and his order in the creation of humanity reflects what is going on in the Trinity between the Father and the Son. So to, to speak poorly of a woman is to speak poorly of Christ. You can't do it. It's not acceptable. It's not theologically close to being accurate. So verse 4, Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. So every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his, her, his head. So in our culture, and why is that? Because his head represents Christ, and we'll talk about that here in a minute. But in our culture today, most churches still follow this. Men take their hats off when they enter a meeting of the church, or even in things that are far less important, like when we sing the national anthem. We would all agree, right, that the national anthem of our country is less important than, or less reverent than the meeting of the church. We can be patriots without being nationalistic and without putting our allegiances of country above our allegiances for God because God is certainly far superior and the kingdom of God is permanent and our country is temporary. But we do that because it's still widely held as respectful to take our hats off on those occasions. To do otherwise would be, could be seen as a sign of disrespect. But you know, again, when we talk about the importance of things and the order of things, that oftentimes we have bigger issues than the dress because the heart is the most important issue, and we don't want to lose sight of that throughout. Okay? For every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as a woman whose head is shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. If it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or head shaved, let her cover her head. So Paul's instruction to the church in Corinth, he teaches that a woman who prays or prophesies with head uncovered dishonors her head. And now he's going to give his reasons of why that is. But before we go there, we need a couple of explanations to a couple of key words that we just mentioned having to do with shame, disgrace, dishonor. Those things are just that, but they are not more than that or less than that. And context determines whether those things are the cause because of a sin or not because of a sin. Okay, let me give you an illustration that hopefully we all can get. If a football team cheats and wins a game, that is a sin or a, dis- a, a shame or a disgrace. It's dishonorable because the sin was involved, right? The sin of cheating. So their sin is present. But in another case, say the University of Georgia losing to Georgia Southern, that would not be a sin. It would just be a disgrace, <laughs> right? We, we understand that, right? And, and, and sometimes, we hate to say it, but we, we're not by them, but by other teams that we should beat, we are disgraced. But, not to pour salt on wounds. Um, however, in, so as we look at it in this case, I don't believe we're talking about sin unless the cause is purely from rebellion or not wanting things to be God's, you know, how God has said that they are. Okay, If your heart is not that, then we aren't talking about sin. We're talking about something less than that. Um, not many women 
regularly or um, because they want to shave their heads completely bald. Most, if you ask most women and said, you know, we'll cut your hair all off, most women would say, I would feel what? Exposed. Feel exposed if I didn't have any hair on my head at all. And when, when a woman gets cancer, that's one of the things she's often most concerned about is that through the chemotherapy, she's going to lose all of her hair. It can be a little bit of an issue for a guy, but it's not as big an issue of a guy. You know, we can joke about male pattern baldness, right? But we would not joke about female baldness. That would, we know that that would be very inappropriate. We know that at our core, that that would be an inappropriate and hurtful thing to do. So, you know, sometimes if a guy gets, gets cancer and he goes through chemotherapy, his buddies will all shave their heads like a sign of solidarity for him. Now, if a woman loses all of her hair, one, she normally would put a, a wig on, right, because she doesn't want people to know that. But also, imagine if she did that and then another woman, a friend of hers, shaved off all of her hair as a sign of solidarity with her. How much bigger of a statement would that be? It'd be pretty intense. So, we have this, this issue. And then verse 7, it says, you're going to give more reasons. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So now Paul continues the theme of headship that he started in verses 2 and 3. Again, the context is during the Lord's Supper while praying and prophesying. He clearly has women praying and prophesying. So he gives this reason of creation. He's not going against the equality of men and women and their value, but he's, go, but he's stating that God did not make Adam and Eve in the exact same way or for the exact same purpose. Back to Genesis 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, It's not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. Verse 21. So the Lord calls a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh and of the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be held fast or joined to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. In Ephesians 5, 30 and 32, For me, we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. He has that same verse. And then this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So in Ephesians 5, the believing husband and wife together make the picture of the Christ and the church. And here in 1 Corinthians 11, it seems more like the, all men and all women make the picture of Christ and man. Okay? Now notice this, verse 10. And a lot of people get to 1 Corinthians eleven ten. They read this verse and go, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And what and why? Okay. Well, we're going to go there. Authority on her head. Authority on her head. What does that word mean? The Greek word there for authority is, the Greek word is actually excusia. Kind of like excuse me, but excusia. All right. Excusia. And it's used in the Bible as a word 
for power. It's different than the word dynamis, which is strictly like brute force power. Excusia has something, something more with it. It's power and liberty by legal right. It's the same word that's used for Jesus' authority to send out his disciples into all the world to preach the gospel in the Great Commission. Now, what's interesting is Paul's already used this term multiple times in this same letter of 1 Corinthians. And remember, when they're getting it, they're getting it in Greek, not in English. So it's the same word throughout. Three times it's translated in English in the NASB as authority. Six times it's translated as right, as the right of a follower of Jesus to do something. And one time it's translated as liberty. And that's important. Because here's this reasoning as a testimony to the angels. When Peter wrote about the role of the Old Testament prophets had in prophesying about the coming of Jesus, he says... In 1 Peter 1.12, it was revealed to them that they were, not, they were serving not themselves but you and the things that they have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. God didn't let the angels know everything in advance. They saw things as they, they happened. And they desired to know more, the why. Why does God put so much care and interest into us as humans? Especially when we're so rebellious. Ephesians 3, 10 and 11, God's purpose in all of this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. You love that? It's on display to all the unseen rulers and authorities. Because remember that the angels were witnesses to creation. They witnessed the order that God gave at creation. They also witnessed the fall. The fall of humanity into sin. They watched Adam, who was given the instruction not to take the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was only given to him. And they watched him step back from his place of headship to let Eve make the decision, then to take the fruit, and then to blame her that he took the fruit. You like that? Nice move, Adam. But you know what? We've been kind of doing that ever since. So, what is this saying? By having this authority, this power and liberty on her head, the woman is a witness to the angels that what was distorted in the fall is now redeemed in Christ at the cross. That's big. That's really big. The cross brings order, peace, and joy to a life full of chaos, bickering, and bitterness. So this is important. Because many people today, both men and women, view the head covering as a symbol of oppression. But that's not what it is. Do you really think that Jesus would give his church a symbol of oppression? He wouldn't do that. Every symbol that we have given to the church by God 
as we see in the scripture, is given to us for us to have a better understanding of liberty. For us to have a better understanding of our freedom and rights in Jesus. You take water baptism that shows that a person has believed in Christ, that they've passed from death into life, that they've been identified with the death and resurrection of Jesus. That they're now free from the curse of sin and the penalty of sin and the power of sin. They're a free person. When we take the bread and the cup, it reminds us of the cost of our liberty that Jesus had to die for it. So we're not going to have along with these things a symbol that is oppressive. We're not. It's a symbol of authority, of legal right. And it's that symbol that shows that it is her legal right as equal with man to pray and prophesy when the church comes together. That she has the authority and the right to do that. And verse 11 verifies this. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor man independent of woman. Woman is listed there first. And if your translation doesn't list it there first, your translation is wrong. Okay, because the earliest Greek manuscripts all have the woman translated. You know, it comes woman first in the order there, and it's clear. Okay, so and that's important for this because what he's saying here is you have this independence and this this freedom and this authority and this right to pray and to prophesy, but don't abuse it. You're still interdependent. Woman is still independent of the man, and man is independent of the woman. For as woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, the woman, and all things originate from God. So neither side, both men or women, should get arrogant or cocky because all things come from God. Because as well, you know, Eve came from Adam, but from that point forward, every man comes from woman, including Jesus. But don't use your liberty to overstep. Because again, we do have that context that things for women in the Jewish culture were, had become more restrictive, okay, in the temple. Things have become more constrictive there. And in centuries later, after this, become even more constrictive. And the wicked attitude of some there's actually you know a common there was a common jewish prayer a couple centuries later that again is all being worked up and influenced by this by the culture at the time of jesus that the prayer was for a man to say god thank you that i am not a dog a gentile or a woman and that's utterly wicked and has nothing nothing to do um, with the way that God has set things up and the way that he views things. So imagine now, for some of the Jewish women at least, going from a culture that didn't allow them anymore in the same place to worship as the men, to now having this freedom. 
And then you've also got the Greek influences and the Roman influences. You can see how some may have found that liberty in Christ and then overstepped it. We need to remember that all things are from God. This truth should keep all men and women from thinking too highly of ourselves. Because again, without him, none of us exist, and he is the purpose of our existence. The purpose of our existence is to worship God. So verse 13, judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does it not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. So then here's Paul's third reason. He talks about nature. The length of hair here, you know, that's a kind of a relative thing. There's not something that goes, oh, this is short, this is long. Possibly has a little bit of the idea of masculinity and femininity um, in, in the overall idea and picture as we take the whole chapter in context. Um, you know, in the Old Testament, we see a Nazarite vow. Part of the vow, a man would not drink wine or cut his hair for a certain amount of time. So he took away the normal things from his Jewish life, and he endured some discomfort and some shame for himself as part of that vow. Again, not a sin, but what he was doing as part of his vow. Because, uh, you know, I know some people are thinking, wait a second, wait a second, didn't Jesus have long hair? I mean, in all the storybook pictures that we saw growing up, I mean, Jesus has long hair, so of course he had long hair. Well, he probably looked a quite bit different than we think he looked in those, uh, he is in those storybook pictures. And if your pictures make him too pasty white, well, anyway. All right, but if a woman has long hair, it's her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. So a woman's hair is her glory, and it's given to her for a covering. Remember, we talked earlier about if a woman didn't have her hair at all, she may feel exposed or feel very uncomfortable not having that. Um, so some take this and argue that Paul is simply arguing for you know, femininity from womanhood and for masculinity. So they don't you know, want to think too much about the covering aspect and think that the long hair itself is the covering that's given throughout. The problem with that, though, is if you reread the whole passage and you substitute long hair for covering in every place, it kind of doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You're kind of left scratching your head much more so. Um, as well, there's a different Greek word that Paul uses in verse 15 for covering than, his, than he's used to that point. He's kind of making a point that these things are indeed different. It also goes against historical and archaeological evidence of how the early church met. So in this passage, we see two coverings for the woman. The first covering is the hair. This covering is her glory. So in the instruction to the church at Corinth, the woman should cover her glory with another covering. Why? Why is that? Because, again, the glory is supposed to be for God, for God. Christ, right? That we're meeting to him. So she covers what would normally be what would, would give her attention to her. Um, and she helps to make that picture of, you know, that we collectively as humanity are under Christ. And the man doesn't cover his head because he's representing not himself, but Christ. I understand some of this can be a, sound a little confusing, but... Work with me, and uh, if you want the notes, you can have them to, to look over some more. Um, 
So we have these two coverings here. Verse 16, but if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor have the churches of God. Um, some take that as we have no other practice, but really what he's saying is we have no such practice. Back to verses 4 and 5, we have no practice of men praying or prophesying with their head coverts, covered, and we have no practice of women praying or prophesying with their heads uncovered. We don't, we don't have those, those things nor do the churches of God, meaning that this teaching and practice were the same throughout the early church. Because a lot of people want to say, well, this only has to do with the church of Corinth because of the problems that they had. But really, Paul's consistent, and Jesus is consistent, the scriptures are consistent, that what is taught in one should be taught in all. So now for the big question, we're going to try to wrap these things up. What do we do today? What do we do today? We've got three options, basically. Option one is to argue that the head covering and everything that it symbolizes were strictly cultural. The whole thing. The whole kit and caboodle. And there are many that argue for that today. Um, they, they use it even to show that most Christians or people who call themselves Christians don't take the Bible literally or seriously on that and that you therefore shouldn't take it literally uh, in the Bible when it talks about um, certain sins, uh, that you can write those off as cultural as well. So that's one option. I'm going to encourage you not to go with that option because it's very dangerous. Second option is to say that what the symbol actually symbolizes is much more important than the symbol itself. With that, 100% agree. Always what is symbolized is more important than the symbol. Right? We get that? The reality is more important than the picture. If I've got a picture of my wife and my wife, and I can have one, I'm taking my wife, not the picture. Okay? Like, very simple. But some would, with that, would want to argue that as long as you're maintaining you know, order and decency and biblical manhood and womanhood, that the symbol isn't um, important. And that if your culture has any symbols... Um, you know, that illustrate these sort of things, then you could wear those, like a wedding ring or something like that. The problem is, for us, wedding rings don't really symbolize much except for married. It certainly doesn't illustrate the things that we've talked about in this passage. Um, but anyway, and we don't have anything in our culture, we don't have any sort of corresponding symbol for anything related to the head. We just don't have it. So that's an option. But let me say that. As I say that, there's people who love Jesus that have a different conclusion on that. They say that that does work. And so if that's your conclusion and you have that, you know, that's your conscience, honestly, before God, don't violate your conscience. Go with your conscience. Okay? So then the third option is not to be as concerned with the cultural symbols of our particular American society and to use the head covering as an opportunity to share biblical truth about what it symbolizes. Because there is a reality that we have to deal with here, that every symbol that we use doesn't make sense without explanation. The burning cup doesn't make sense without explaining it, and without explaining it accurately, because many people viewed it heard, people are taking the body and blood, what, they're cannibals? So you have to have proper explanation 
or that it somehow literally becomes the body and blood of Jesus when it's blessed or something like that. There can be many misunderstandings, and we have to explain the illustration carefully. With baptism, people, many people take that and say, well, if a person's, you know, that's how a person is saved. And that's the conclusion that they come to. No, we have to, under, we have to explain clearly what it symbolizes, what it means, and what it's used for, what its importance is. So all of our symbols we have to give explanation to. So we have a, you do have an opportunity with that to use it to be able to explain and to show the pictures that are being illustrated here. If you do take the third option, my personal belief is that it's only practical to wear the head covering during the Lord's Supper. The reason being that's the context of what is being talked about in chapters 11 through 14. To make any application outside of that is purely conjecture. It's purely your preference or maybe your own conscience before God, but it can't be back you know, on, this, on these verses here because the context is the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is the only place where we're making this sort of picture and talking about this, this uh, very clearly and where the um, women are needing to exercise their right and show their authority to exercise that right of praying and prophesying in the public meeting of the church. So that's the only, would be the only place and only time that I personally think it would be useful or beneficial. Um, to wear it around town, you know, in a very obvious way that you're wearing a head covering, kind of like in the Muslim context, would probably do more harm to the gospel than good. In this context, it can be explained and shown Here's the picture that we're trying to make, and it's not a symbol of oppression. It's a symbol of liberty or freedom or of right, and can use it in that way. So your options are basically the second or the third option. Um, you know, so the, clear, the key things are to have a clear conviction. Uh, from your, your conscience is clear before God on which the, that you do, uh, whether you're a man or woman, whether we're talking about covering or uncovering, okay, um, on both of those. You know, but we want to be, we do want to be humble and teachable. We want to understand that we can change our position on things over time if we feel like we have a better understanding of the scripture and what the Lord wants from us. I'll give you a very short illustration of that. Um, we used not to have an open meeting at all. You know, we would have songs, we would have a message, we'd have some more songs, and in that time people could take the bread and the cup. But we didn't have it open to people talking and things like that. And some of that was practical, especially if we were meeting in a bar downtown and we'd have people come in off the street and sometimes not in their right minds. They'd get up and talk anyway, so it really didn't solve anything. Um, so, you know, we'd have to, you know, gently guide through that process. But, um, you know, then that wasn't really a, a legitimate reason anymore, but we were still keeping things that way. And one of our, our the brothers from Mexico, one of our friends from Mexico came and visited us and after a meeting, he, talk, he comes up to me and he says, Chet, this is, you know, later on we're talking. He's like, you know, y'all have some really think, great things going on with this church, but it would be really helpful if you did just a few things, a couple things just a little more biblically. <laughs> Ooh, those words stung. They hurt. They hurt. But we took him to heart. We took him to heart. We talked about it, you know, as elders and and we've seen people be able to use their gifts more and to, to grow in their faith and for the, to be a benefit to the church body to have the open meeting and to do things 
as we saw them to be um, in the scripture. And so that's, that was a benefit of moving position and having the humility to listen and to move position you know, on that. So in this decision, here's just a couple of things that are helpful. So as you make your decision, the first is to do your best to eliminate your bias one way or another and say, what do you believe the passage actually teaches? Some of you have no bias because you've never heard of it before. Some of you have bias because of what you grew up in, you know, and either you know, for that or from how you experienced it against that. And so there may be some inherent bias in your perspective. So you need to try to eliminate that and to say, what does the scripture teach? So how does your, the second thing is, how does your personal background and your corresponding culture today want you to do with the passage? Okay. Then third, most important, what do you believe God wants you to do on this issue, on this passage? Those might not be the same thing. So we encourage you, again, not to violate your conscience one way or the other and to make sure that there's no rebellion in your heart against God. That's the instruction on it. Follow your conscience, but make sure you don't have rebellion in your heart against God. As a church, how we worship is important, but not nearly as important as who we worship. We get that? How we worship is important, but not nearly as important as who we worship. Jesus is always going to be the focus of our church. Always. And our meeting of the Lord's Supper. We're going to be focused on him, not the issue of head coverings. We will not, the second thing is we're not going to discourage anyone from wearing a head covering. Third thing is we're not going to look around and see who is and who is not wearing one. Or what guy is or isn't wearing a hat. And we will not judge each other's hearts on this issue. We're not going to be divided over this issue. We will not be divided over this issue. Okay. We will maintain biblical manhood and womanhood. We have a complementarian view, very clearly. We allow and encourage women to pray and prophesy publicly in the church. And I just have a question there is, can you imagine all the women that we've listed earlier, any of them from Old Testament or New Testament, being here and not being allowed to pray publicly? Are you kidding? I mean, some of their words are in the scripture that we read. That, that would be ridiculous. Uh, and anyway, we've got more to tackle on that in coming chapters. But we're going to encourage that. We want to lift up women in the church and honor them as they should be and to see their gifts used and used well. But in all things, we're going to seek to give God all the glory and all the praise. Amen. That's the main thing. In all things, we're going to seek to give God all the glory and all the praise. Remember that when we come here, we come for Jesus. We come for Jesus. That's the point. That's the point. And so it's, it's difficult. Some things in that chapter are not easy. Uh, either to understand or to, or to understand before God exactly what you're supposed to do with it. But we pray that you will do something with it, that you won't just go, well, that was interesting, and move along, or I don't like that, or I did like that, or whatever, but that you'll take some time seriously before the Lord about the issue. Um, and I'm thankful for the, 
for the word of God and that we have the ability to go through it even when it's difficult for us. I'm thankful for the other elders with their input you know, on this and for others, and I'm thankful for your hearts uh, to hear my heart and to hopefully hear from the Lord on these things. Uh, so let's go ahead and pray, and then our musicians will come back up. Heavenly Father, we love you and praise you. We thank you for your word and your goodness to us. We thank you that you love us, and we praise you, God. And we give you all the honor and glory. Help us, Lord, when we come to difficult things. Help us to understand them correctly in their proper context. Help us not to take extremes one way or the other, but to have good biblical balance in how we view these things. Help us to seek your glory and your honor above what we want or don't want, above our preferences or our culture or our backgrounds or our personal histories. But Lord, you are good. Jesus, what could we do without you? Where would we be without you? As we take the bread and the cup, as you've instructed us to, we give you thanks. That you are our Savior and our Redeemer, our King who will return who will reign forever and ever. And as you taught us to pray, Lord, we pray that until that time, well, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, you know we are in a broken world and we are broken people and we desperately need you. We love you, Jesus. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen.